Well, good morning. Glad to see you here today. I am pumped to be with you. Also, you know, we're a week out from daylight savings. That thing is a jerk. Can we just agree on that? I've never hated something more inanimate in my entire life. Traffic, I hate, but there's people behind those wheels, and I hate them. I hate them. Uh, but this, I feel like we're a week out. And you know what? The, the jet lag, the, the jet lag that you have for me, you didn't go on no trip. You didn't get to go anywhere fun, and you feel awful. And if you have kids, you've been tortured for those first three days. It's the absolute worst. But here we are, a week out of it, maybe two. I don't know. I haven't been keeping track. Uh, but we are solidly smack dab in the prayers Jesus prayed. And I am so honored uh, to bring the message this morning. And as John said, I'm an author, a speaker, a podcaster, which feels like a millennial's lower back tattoo when you tell people that you're a podcaster. And it's like, I don't have any like like inked proof that I'm putting myself out there on display, but I do, you know what I'm saying? And it's crazy now to see all these like grown folks who have these lower back tattoos mixed in with their stretch marks. And you're like, that was a decision you did not think through, okay? Especially when it's the flames. Could you not got a decal on your car? You had to put it on your body. Like, think it through. Um, but anyway, no, that is uh, what I indeed do for a living. And we're going to be in Matthew 15, but we're going to zero in on one line of scripture this morning uh, that really hones in on a simple, simple, simple prayer that Jesus prayed. But before we get into that, I have a confession to make to you, and it is that I am outrageously optimistic. I am glass half full. The house could be burning on fire, and I'd be sitting drinking a cup of tea acting like everything is fine. Like, it's a toxic trait, really. I, and, you know, it's a strength. And, but any overuse of a strength, we can admit, is probably a weakness. But there's one area of my life that I am judgy McJudgy pants, and I wear it like a badge of honor. And, I, and I, it's narcissistic, honestly. But I don't care. And it's this. I judge food. I didn't say I'm picky. I didn't say I was picky. I said I judge it. In a past life... I was writing for uh, South Sound Magazine, and I was a food reviewer, food critique for all, some local restaurants. And I absolutely loved it because I got paid to go eat this food and then tell everybody if it's good or if it's awful. And I'm like, one grain of salt too much? Blow these people up. Like, I will let you know. No, I'm joking. I wasn't that awful. But I wanted to be. And anyone who dines with me or my husband can attest that my nicest compliment <laughs> to any food I eat, it doesn't matter where I'm eating, and I love fine dining, is that's not bad. That's not bad. That is five stars, you guys. That is five stinking stars. And this would all be great and fun, but the joke's on me because I had kids. And you know what kids are? Picky and judgy with their food. There could be a, a hint of cilantro or one green onion and my kids will turn the tables and throw a hunger strike. Like, they will, they will shut it down and go jump on the couch and sit in tears if there's something that they won't eat. They will judge it to the cows come home. And you know what? You're like, child, this is sloppy joes over tater tots. Like, just eat it. You can eat this. It's not going to kill you. You're going to make it. It's like, it's kid food. It's sustenance. Like, make it work. But the truth is, we can judge them. And you can judge me for my thing. But the, but the reality is you likely have negativity towards something as well. And research confirms this. We all struggle with the negativity bias. Basically, we are more likely to recall negative stimuli, negative interactions, than we are positive ones. 
all of us across the board, this is how we're wired. So this shows up, let's say, in a job performance review where you know, your, your boss is praising you for everything you've done well, everything you've aced, but then at the very end, they might give a little bit of feedback where you could have improved. And what do you walk out thinking about? Do you think about all the things that you did well? Or do you think about that one thing they commented on that you could have improved on? You know, or, or for those of us married, we might think of our, our wedding day like, oh, this was awesome. But what's the story we always tell, the thing that went wrong? We always fixate on that negative. We're so quick to recall. And think about late at night, you, you, be, you can remember when you acted a fool, even though everything else had gone great about a particular circumstance. And all you fixate is on the negative. All of us are bent toward this way. And I think this is most on blast on the interwebs where we will blow up a politician, pastor, someone else who starts with a P, and we will fixate on one thing somebody said rather than look at everything they've said. We'll just fixate. I know you don't do this, but the person sitting next to you is awful. They'd be blowing people up on the internet. We're so quick. Now, I don't need to convince you about the pervasive nature of negativity, but I do think we need a way out. We desperately need a way out, especially in light of the collective trauma of the last two years. We are drowning in hard moments. We have enough negativity or, or heaviness or loss or failure to sink a ship. If we all had a jam board or whiteboard up here and wrote down our hardest, heaviest things, I'm sure we could fill a football field with broken moments and losses that feel that they've marked us. We've embodied them in such a way that we feel like it's part of who we are now. Yet Jesus offers us a way out. And we see that starting in Matthew 15. I'm going to read it to you starting in verse 29. Now Jesus is at the height of his ministry. He's shepherding, pastoring, leading, healing, loving. It says Jesus left and went along the Sea of Galilee. He went up on a mountainside, and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the cripple made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry, or they may collapse along the way. Okay, don't you feel like that's kind of extra for Jesus to say collapse? Like, I just feel like you really went for it on that verb. His disciples answered, where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. Verse 36, then he took the seven loaves and the fish, and he gave thanks. He broke them and gave them to the disciples, and in turn to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was 4,000 men, besides women and children. After Jesus had sent the crowd away, he got into the boat and went to the vicinity of Magadan. Now, when we hear that passage, we might focus on the miracle, rightly so. He, he done did a real big miracle and fed a whole lot of people. We might zero in on the disciples' lack of faith 
and their inability to remember from chapter 14 he did the same thing just a minute ago to a different audience, but he did the same thing. But we could so easily miss the subtle yet subversive nature of Jesus' quick prayer, thanking the Father for the provision before it even happened. It's so notable that this, this huge moment when it's a hot day, there's thousands of people, the disciples are scrambling, and Jesus offers a prayer of gratitude, of thankfulness. And we see this, in this little moment, we see the power of thanks. We see a time marked in space where there was a before and an after. But in this moment, there was gratitude, even among chaos. It was chaotic. It was a chaotic moment. And there's a history in the Jewish tradition of thankfulness, often at a time of provision or before a meal. Uh, the Jewish people would say thanks. And there's other points in the Old Testament um, where Jewish heroes of the faith also demonstrated this power in prayer of thanks. In 1 Samuel 7, 12, this is my favorite one. It says, Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, thus far the Lord has helped us. The Israelites were long known to build small altars out of stones when they were traveling to the promised land. Just a small offer, um, uh, uh, offering to stop in praise for all God had done. Just something simple to mark the moment, even though it was still hard. And then again, in Leviticus 7, I love this. Anytime somebody brought a sacrifice, because before Jesus, we brought sacrifices and slaughtered them. If it was an expression of thanksgiving, if there was a heartfelt uh, time to honor, there would be additional requirements. Like if you really were thankful, it's like, no, don't just bring the, don't just bring the, the, the lamby, go ahead and bring some bread as well. Like you had to bring more because it was this moment of awe. I'm so thankful for what God has done. Such power. And we don't see any self-aggrandizing nature on Jesus' behalf. It doesn't say, look at me, look at what I've done. It says, thank you. Thank you. He is both the author and the recipient of this practice. Now, I'm an Enneagram 3. If y'all into Enneagram, I know people call it like the Christian horoscope, but I'm really into it. And I am an Enneagram 3, which is like the achiever. I am a 3, wing 3, side of 3, extra 3 on top, like wear an extra coat of 3, which means I love to achieve, not because I want people to be pleased with me, but just because it's how I'm wired and I enjoy it. So this is, could be such a temptation for so many of us who are, we feel so driven. And the world says, look at you. Take credit for everything you've done. We celebrate on the front of Forbes or Fortune or Inc., the fast company, like self-made billionaires. Look what they've done. We always want to praise people who are accomplished. And in that moment, instead of saying, look at me, Jesus says, thank you. Thank you. This came to light uh, recently for me in this practice on Blast when I saw a viral video, perhaps you saw it in the last week, and it is a mother sitting over her son. He's at a computer, and she is waiting to see if he passed the bar so he can practice law. So she's, she's nervous, he's nervous, I'm nervous, watching it on my phone in bed, like wondering what's going to happen. Did he pass it? And there's no hints in the caption, and it's all quiet. And he's clicking his email and he opens it. And then his head drops to his hands. And his mom sees that he's passed. 
and immediately start shouting, praise you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. You are worthy. You are worthy of praise. You are glorious. Lord, we thank you. She drops to her knees. I'm weeping. She's weeping. He's weeping. The younger son pans to himself, taking the video, smiling. Like, it is the most holy moment. I highly encourage you, if you haven't already seen it, go find it. It was on every major news network. Um, HuffPost also had a little thing about it. I mean, people were talking about it left, right, and center. Because in that moment, she didn't say, son, you did such a good job. You worked so hard all those late nights studying. Look at you. Look what you did. No, no, no. She said, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for providing. Ooh. That was her, that was her reaction? What? We always want to take the credit. It is such an act of sacrifice to reorient ourselves from this self-congratulation and instead have a posture of gratitude. It is not the way we are wired, right? That negative bias, it is something to be cultivated. And the, and the truth is, when we are able to see our skills, our gifts, our accomplishments, or our losses, or our frustrations against the backdrop of a generous God, everything changes. We, it's like going from blurry to 2020. You really start to see clearly. Uh, one of my friends and uh, author, D.L. Mayfield, wrote this book called The Myth of the American Dream, Thoughts on Affluence and Power and Autonomy. And in this book, she details how she lives among refugee communities in Portland in a low-income apartment complex and purposely lives there because she wants to be in and among these people. And uh, she talks about how she has struggled with a lot of guilt and, uh, and really had to face her own Western individualist approach to flourishing because the most, most you know, oppressed people group who have lost so much, their, their kids have been murdered in front of them, they've been persecuted, they've been starved and tortured, are sitting there and they, they, they have been so blessed and seen such opposition overcome that they're the most generous people she's ever met. She said, nobody before in my entire life is constantly knocking on my door. Hey, I made you a pot of beans. Not because they had extra, but intentionally made them some. Hey, did you need help with childcare? Hey, did you need this? And she said there was one moment that really rubbed her the wrong way that she's had to wrestle with her understanding of generosity and gratitude was when this single mom of three young kids, it was her neighbor, on her son's like fifth birthday brought a $50 bill. And that was a ton of money for this woman. But this woman was like, I've been so provided for. I'm so thankful that she couldn't help but be generous. And while DL was overcome by such a, a, a large monetary amount from someone who had so little, she couldn't help but realize how little we think of generosity when we struggle with our own place of gratitude. We often think, I can't do that. I, I got to get mine or I got to take care of me before I can be generous. That's the power of thanks. It takes it from just your own internal struggle or your posture, and it affects everyone around you. And we can all see this in our very individualized culture that we live in. We're constantly thinking about number one. We're constantly thinking about how we can get ahead. But Jesus models the opposite. To say thank you no matter what, no matter if it's the mountaintop or the valley, to say thank you, that is the power but we can't fixate on a posture of thanks until we have a vision for thanks. 
Now, we have looked at the story of Jesus feeding the multitudes, but there are other places in Scripture where he models a simple prayer of thanks. In John eleven twenty three, 23, we see this impossible situation of Lazarus' death and resurrection, and Jesus gave thanks. In Luke eleven twenty one, Jesus' disciples misunderstand him. They don't get what he's about, and he gives thanks. And then notably in Luke twenty two nineteen, on the cross, when anyone could hold a grudge or anyone could want to like tap out and have a smoke break, what did Jesus do? He gives thanks. Now here's where it gets tricky, is when we, we believe that we were obedient to what the Lord asked, and then it gets really hard. And then we're like, wait, I heard you. I, was, I did what you told me to do, and now it's getting hard? And now you want me to thank you for it? Nah, dog. Not here for that. In my own life, uh, I'm adopted, and my oldest son is adopted, and we, we felt the call to adopt internationally and went through the process that that takes. It was a two-year process. We were in our 20s trying to raise $50,000. It was crazy talk, but we were being obedient to what we believed the Lord had on our heart. And then we get there. And we are in the process to adopt two little boys. And we were so excited. These boys lived with us for three months. And at the last minute, one of the adoptions didn't make it across the finish line. And so here we are, obedient. First time being a mom, saying yes to Jesus, and then having the most traumatic experience of my existence. When I pursued PTSD therapy after losing a child in that way, uh, the, the therapist was sharing that often in failed adoption cases, especially if the child has lived with you, your brain processes it like a kidnapping. So here I was saying, yes, Jesus, I am following you. I am being obedient. And then to say, thank you, when ish hits the fan? Like what? That was Jesus on the cross. I'm obedient to you, Father. I'm obedient to you, Father. Yet here I am, nails in my hand and in my feet, bleeding out, giving everything. Thanks gets really hard when times get really hard. But a vision isn't allowing us to slip in any sort of toxic negativity or naive optimism guilty, or blind escapism. It's allowing us to be rooted in our understanding of generosity and recognizing where God is at work. And that requires a discipline of thanks. Recently, the Wall Street Journal published an article on how those who have practices of gratitude are happier by all measures, emotionally, relationally, their health, everything goes better. And they shared a few people who, who were willing to admit their gratitude practices. And it's, a, it's an interesting group, not somebody you would also ever see in a group together. So here we go. Before author Stephen King, now you know he'd done some dark things, so this is interesting. Before author Stephen King gets out of bed in the morning, he runs through a mental inventory of the things he's grateful for. So does actor Tracy Ellis Ross. Musician and director Questlove writes a 15-item gratitude list every Sunday. Nike CEO John Donahue spends time meditating on questions like, what am I grateful for in the broad sense of my life? Researchers from the University of Pennsylvania confirm that those who have a discipline of thanks, a discipline of gratitude, have lower blood pressure and sleep better. I will take both of those. I would love those. Both of those. Sign me up. 
Uh, what I'm fascinated by is that not only do our minds, but our bodies crave what happens when we're grateful. Isn't that powerful? Your body, your, your physiological makeup will change when you put this into practice. And this don't cost no money. You can do this wherever you're at. You can do this while you're driving a dump truck, while you're in the pickup line, while you're stuck wherever you have to be, waiting in line at the grocery store. I don't care where you are. This is something we can practice. This isn't like PhD Jesus following. This is like community college, okay? Like we can do this. We can put this in to practice. And we see uh, Paul invites us in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So the instructions were there from the beginning for us. These practices aren't anything new confirmed by Harvard and the University of Pennsylvania. This is stuff that's been going on 2,000 plus years that we can embody, that can change us from the inside out. What a thing to be known for. That woman is so grateful for everything she has. That man is so grateful at your eulogy. Could you imagine if that's what you were remembered for? Oh, no matter what was going on, he was so, so grateful. He always had reason to give thanks. Mm, so good. To have a heart of thankfulness, we need a habit of thankfulness. We need a habit. Uh, Harvard Medical School reports that there are a couple things you can do, and I want to read them out and think of it as a springboard for prayer as we give thanks. First, keep a gratitude journal. I am an avid journaler. I started journaling when I was 11, and I still have them all in my garage, and I'm like, please don't mold. Is there too much moisture in here? I don't know what I'm going to do. But once in a while, I crack those puppies open, and I am so, so thankful for the way the Lord showed up and the reasons I had to praise 20 years ago. Ten years ago, five years ago, you got a notes app on your phone. I'm pretty sure you could figure out a way that this works for you. But being able to just name the quick things, the big things, the little things. Lord, thank you for this food today. Lord, thank you for the, for the gas I have in my car, despite how expensive it is. We're quick to complain, aren't we? We will fix it on the negative so quick. But Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Thank you that I'm still here. You fill in the blanks. You can think of some. Next, list what you are grateful for out loud, moving it from your subconscious to your conscious mind. It kind of finishes this stress cycle of things that are kind of haunt you at night or kind of show up when you're dreaming or sleeping or when you're least expecting it, moving it to subconscious and saying it out loud or, or again, writing it down. One of the ways we practice this in my home is we'll often say to the kids at dinner, where do you see God right now? Meaning, where do you see God at work? Where do you see him on display? And how can we be thankful for that because he is at work even if you have to be on the hunt for it even if it feels like a mystery sometime there is reason to praise and I almost, I almost have a middle schooler who thinks the end, world's going to end over the little things so it, it can sometimes be an endeavor but we can do it next meditate I think it's particularly helpful when we think of meditation to think of one attribute or value that we're thankful for. Maybe it's just the love, the all-encompassing love of God. Don't think of anything else or any other circumstance, just the embodied love of God. Or maybe it's the peace, the peace of Jesus, thinking of that one, one, one thing and meditating on that and being thankful for that. 
or maybe it's for the provision, something more in the, in the concrete, not so abstract. Maybe it's provision that God has given you for that day. Pointing down to just one thing, meditating on that one thing, freeing your mind from all other scattered senses and just that one thing. Think of the person we become as we embody that practice. And lastly, having a set time of day. Maybe it's morning, noon, night. I often wake up about 10, 15 minutes before my alarm goes off, but I'm not getting out of bed. And I'll just lay there and I'll start to pray. That'll, that can be my morning ritual. Or if I can't fall asleep, start to pray. When I was in high school, I had a Chevy truck. Like, it was such a beast. Like, the ones you see with the DOT, they're like urine yellow. Like, that's what I drove. Had two tanks on both one on each side. And I didn't have a working radio. I, had, I was sitting on a phone book, like that whole thing. And I, I'm five one and like trying to make this thing work. And with no radio and a 25 minute commute to school, I would just pray. Think of things I was grateful for. Think of how God was showing up. That's all I added. I had a lot of time by myself. We all have a lot of time by ourselves in our own head. We live there. So being able to cultivate this, because you're going to become something either way. Time will still pass and you're going to develop into something. Why not develop into somebody who's grateful, Right? The band can come up. I hope this is not an area we're are anemic in. Because when we look at the person of Jesus and the gratitude he showed, even though he was all powerful, even though he could heal on demand, even though he could bend time and space to his liking, he still practiced this. So I'm convinced there's something in it for us. However imperfect it may appear or seem, we can practice this gratitude. We can find and mine our worlds for the good. One of my friends, she often talks about this passage, how goodness, our goodness will follow us all the days of our lives. And she said, Tiffany, goodness, Jesus, quite literally follows us all the days of our lives. And being able to pinpoint it and celebrate it. Because especially after everything we've endured, it would be a blessing to ourselves. We will reap many benefits, mind, body, and soul, if we are willing to celebrate the good. The Hebrew term for gratitude is hakarat hatov, which literally means recognizing the good. To recognize it. Maya Angelou uh, famously said, let gratitude be the pillow on which you pray your nightly prayers. It's a posture. It's, it's a choice. It's something that changes us from the inside out. The way we see ourselves, the way we see others, that power that leads to generosity, that vision, a clear vision, because things get blurry and life gets hard. You have to have vision for the days ahead, especially if you don't know how they're going to turn out. And you know what the beauty of this is? Jesus liberates us from our belief that we are defined by our losses. We are defined by our doubts. We are defined by our accomplishments or our defeats. We are liberated from thinking we're in control of everything. That's good news. That is good news. Because we're poor managers of how things are going to turn out. We are. Because unlike him, we cannot bend time and space. But we can be thankful. No matter what goes wrong, that is something we can show up and do. 99% of life, we could probably agree, is out of our control. But this thing isn't. 
This is something we can walk in and we can practice and we can pray like Jesus as imperfect Jesus followers. And we can see not only our lives change, but the lives around us and our world. They'll know we're Christians by our love and I'm pretty sure they'll know we're Christians by our generosity. By the way we live out gratitude no matter what happens. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you that we are not bound by our own ideas of how things should turn out. We don't have to say, look at me. We can say, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I pray that you would utter that under your breath. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. You might be in your darkest day, but I pray that you could say, thank you, thank you. Jesus, we trust you with our lives. You exchange our pain for your grace, our sin for new life. Have your way. Amen. As we transition to a time of worship and communion, in mainline traditions, communion is called Eucharist, which quite literally translates to thanksgiving. So as you break the bread and you remember his body, as you drink the wine, remembering his blood spilled, I pray that this would be a time of remembrance because you are worthy and because you are so very loved. Would you have a moment of thanksgiving for all Jesus has done for you?